Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Mike Bach. Mike is the director and former CEO at Philpot. Philpot manufactures a diverse range of rubber products for numerous industries. He's also a seasoned mentor that helps numerous executives over the years grow and achieve great success. He has a reputation of growing profitable organizations and innovating in changing markets. So, uh, Mike, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me, Tats. This is uh, an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, I know early in your career, I guess you, you did a lot of uh, years at CorePro. How, how was that like? Well, it was... My career there was one where I still pinch myself in amazement that it was such a pleasure. It was a tremendous run. You know, we started the company in 1984 and we took it public on the New York Stock Exchange in 1992. And eight years from a startup to be able to do that, it was quite a ride. Hectic, pressure, stressful, but great fun. Wow. But those really were my formative years there. That's where I cut my teeth in the corrosion prevention business. Actually was an author of five U.S. patents and several overseas during that period. Wow. But it was great. We, we were encouraged to be creative, and that led to great productivity. When we started the company, there were eight of us that were all highly competitive in eight different cities in the U.S. And I had two great mentors in uh, Joe Rogg and David Kroon. They were uh, just incredible bosses, but again, encouraged that creativity and really made each of us productive in the area of growing the company. Well, so you start, you said encourage us to be creative, like in what ways? Like how did they facilitate that? Well, there was nothing that was off the table. Mm. In fact, I can remember our CEO was Joe Rogg, who I mentioned, and I walked in one day just as an example, and I said, there's a big infrastructure project being built in Indonesia, and boy, what a great place to apply our technology to keep it from degrading over time due to corrosion. He just looked at me and said, I don't see you have a suitcase with you. (laughs) and those were the marching orders we we were the global leader in what we did we we were constantly again challenged to do things better in order to solve customers problems and doing that made us the best in the world at what we did and proudly so wow so how with creativity as you grow there's some structure that needs to, to be in place. How did you balance that? Because the thing is, there's only so many resources that a company has. How did that sort of come together? Well, the short answer is we had a uh, great banking partnership. Mm. We worked with 
it was at the time National City Bank in Cleveland. They were founded back around the Civil War. The CEO of the asset-based lending group was Tom Poe, a boyhood friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he assisted us through the whole way. But finding the resources to finance and grow the company is actually the easy part. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you have a good story, the opportunities are credible, that's great. But I have to ask you, Tats, did you ever wake up in the morning and say, hey, I got to have a corrosion prevention system on my pipeline or our, our water system or anything like that? I mean, it just doesn't hit you. <laughs> so what we were faced with is the issue of education. Mm. There was a study done by our Federal Highway Administration back in Oh, heck, this is back in the 1990s, and the Industry Association, it's called NACE International. It really started as the National Association of Corrosion Engineers, published the document along with the Federal Highway Administration that said at the time, the cost just in the U.S. of corrosion to our GDP was $276 billion with a B. Mm. Times we're in now, that may seem like a low number, but those are dollars in the 1990s. So certainly that has increased. That's the direct cost, the social cost. There's a bridge out due to corrosion. People are sitting non-productive. is probably twice that, according to the study. But okay, that is out there. It's a big number. What does one need to take advantage of it? Because what I can tell you, even after the study was published, people weren't rolling through our doors with wheelbarrows full of cash. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) It just wasn't something that was on everybody's mind. So the issue became education. And back again to the creativity portion of what our company was founded on. How do we do this? Well, you do it through education. And you educate the private companies as to the return on investment that will be brought by putting in corrosion prevention systems rather than waiting until a structure fails, whether it be a underground pipe or an elevated water tank. And you can do it at generally one to 10% of the cost of replacement. So the savings are incredible. And a lot of people embrace that. But as much as we hate to admit it, regulations sometimes are necessary to get people's attention. So we also worked with Congress in order to let them know that there were opportunities here to really save the economy. And it wasn't simply the savings in the waste that was happening, bridges collapsing, things like that, but it was also job creation. As these corrosion prevention systems go in, structures aren't failing, money can be saved, and that money redeployed on building new things, which our infrastructure needs right now. We we need to be expanding, not fixing. So both on government-owned structures, bridges, highways, things like that, a great big one was the Department of Defense, where Mm -hmm. that same study said that their cost was $20 billion per year. And you think about the amount of steel in the Navy that's floating out in salt water, which is highly corrosive. The opportunities were there. So 
what we did is not only went on a process of educating the owners, but also worked through government. In certain markets, regulations came of it. What's interesting on government structures, though, is especially when we were working with the Department of Defense, yeah, letting things corrode and fail really is a waste. And the government, I learned, is not in the business of saving money. They spend money. But if you can help them spend it on the things that are most appropriate, and in the case of defense, it is supporting the warfighter. You want to be spending money on that, not replacing a pipeline at a military base because it failed due to corrosion. The Department of Defense has been very active in this area, spends a lot of money and gets a tremendous return on it. So education is the whole thing. When we took the company public, these analysts on Wall Street would look at us and say, why aren't you a several billion dollar company? (laughs) And again, that's where that the question I asked you about waking up wanting a corrosion prevention <laughs> system what was not a new one. And that's what we used with them and we explained that it was an education process. So Yeah, that makes sense. So you after many years at that Corpro, you you ended up at Philpot. How how did that happen? It was again one of those you pinch yourself. Remember at Corpro we, we began as a startup, yeah. uh, moved all the way up to being on the New York Stock Exchange. It did have its share of, of issues, education of the marketplace, acceptance of a new company, financial resources. We had a good partner there, but often with a startup, that's an issue. I had an opportunity to move over to Philpot that was, believe it or not, founded in Cleveland in 1889. Mm over 130 years ago. And I was called, it it was an ESOP, employee stock ownership plan, where the employees own the company. And the nature of that type of an operation is it becomes highly conservative. Anything in business, you have to decide how much risk you're willing to take. Well, at Philpot, they wanted to wait until it was 100% assurance of a, of a high return on investment before they'd make a decision. Mm. And as a result, the company was stuck. It really wasn't even growing at the rate of the producer price index. Mm. So we came in, kept the team that was there, and used the philosophies that I learned from my mentors at Corpro in order to unlock the creative juices in the people. and. We went around and said, you need to think about how we can better serve the customer. All of us talk to customers. In fact, we created an environment at Philpot where even the CFO, our chief financial officer, was required to go make calls on customers. We became customer-centric, and everything that we did was to increase value for that customer. Over time, what we were able to do in the 12 years I was there is more than triple the size of the business and dramatically increase the share value. I retired here just a short period ago, and we promoted from within a fellow by the name of David Farrell, who I think you'd enjoy interviewing on some future show. But he's running the company now and has an absolute belief 
in our people, our customers, ultimately our suppliers and third party uh, partners, but it's about people. And when, when people are creative and come in every day with a positive attitude, it works. Yeah. So how did you change the culture? I mean, was it just the fact that you got everyone talking to customers that they felt more comfortable with the innovative approach? Or was there a lot of sort of, like you said, you called education to get them, get them there? It was really an attitude shift that the core of which was giving them self-confidence. Hmm. If you're afraid to make a decision, that is a terrible trait in a company. To me, the only thing to fear is fear. If you're fearing failure, you will never make a decision and you'll end up in a situation where the company just won't grow. So what we did is we worked with each individual and you almost create like a stem and leaf effect is the core team, the management team, first has to buy in. And that was fairly simple. And you know, David Farrell was a part of that. I think he could tell you how by letting the employees know through the management team that they were highly, we were highly supportive of a creative environment that cascaded out. And eventually we had employees bringing us ideas, bringing us opportunities. Here's one you may get a kick out of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 1889. Mm-hmm. The company had all kinds of different products and devices that it had developed over time that were unique, but the company did not have a single patent. And why? Even though the, the idea was novel, it was in fact patentable, the thought is, well, that's an investment, and what if the patent's not awarded? Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the decision is so that. We don't have 100% guarantee that we're going to get the patent. We won't waste the money. And literally hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars of lost opportunities occurred when often foreign competitors, if you will, would do knockoffs on the products that uh, Phil Pont made. So in, uh, well, let's see, it had to be in about 2008, Phil Pont was working with a partner in the plumbing market that's actually also in Ohio. And I was sitting with them and our guy and the customer were talking about a means of affixing the toilet bowl to the toilet tank Mm. in a manner that would make sure it doesn't leak. And it's everybody's had to change out a toilet tank and you know the bowl trust and it's difficult to get off. So they were talking about a fastener system. Now think about this, a fastener system Mm. on a toilet, how long a toilet's been made. (laughs) And they are sitting talking about this concept of an encapsulated fastener with redundant O-rings built onto it. And I said to them, has anybody ever done this before? And they said, well, we don't think so. And I said, why don't we do a search and find out, in fact, that this is novel? And to cut to the uh, chase here, we ended up, one of our fellows and the customer's employee ended up co-writing a patent that was issued. And not only was it issued, an improvement has been filed and accepted by the same people, our people, the authors. 
So I, I, it, w- it was a great opportunity because I took this back then to our employees and I said, see, I will guarantee you the very best paper clip has yet to be invented. <laughs> and that's kind of a, a mantra, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke that we use, but it's absolutely there. There, there is nothing that we can't look at that can't stand improvement. And often if you do that in a unique way, it helps the company grow. And when the company grows in an ESOP like Philpot, the value to the individual shareholder who is all who are all of the employees increases and another foundation that we set is is wealth creation. We are trying to create wealth for our shareholders, which happens to be all of our employees who happen to touch all of our customers who have all the ideas that we can bring answers to that will create growth in the company. The circle is completed. Wealth is created for the employee. Makes sense. Now, you're talking about IP investment. Now, obviously, you can't invest into taking everything as a, as a patent because, like you said, the cost, there's costs associated. How do you prioritize those opportunities? How do you sift through them? Well, you do that in, in partnership for the most part with the customer. Mm-hmm. If the customer doesn't agree with how you're going to do it, there's going to be no investment in it. So you, you can't just magically come up with an idea and we just build it and they will come. So it's <laughs> constant communication with the customers. And really that's where the ideas come from, where the prioritization comes from. You know, Philpot, I don't know if I mentioned, is in the industrial rubber and plastic molding business. And we have direct salespeople that are on the road, they're employees, they're speaking with customers every day. They become the partners of the customers because our guys are application specialists. Something might have worked in in one market, a similar opportunity presents itself in another. Our guys can go ahead and develop an answer. And again, it just, it fuels the, the growth of Philpot and helps our customers by improving their margins. One of the things, if I may, Tess, back in, it was before I got to Philpot, there was a attitude in the industrial business that you needed to run to global sourcing to save on labor Mm. in order to be able to reduce costs to the customers. So Philpot, again, the, the company has 130 years of rich history, two world wars, a Great Depression. The company thrived through all of that. And it did by adapting to the customer's needs. Well, Philpot's biggest customer said, we're going to China. You can either join us or find some, or we'll find somebody that will. So the company found itself doing more and more of its volume through manufacturing over in China to the point where only the small runs were being made by the Philpot rubber manufacturing operation. And it becomes cost ineffective. So the company actually exited that business. Again, it was before I arrived at the company in 2005, probably mm-hmm. 10 years before that. So we found ourselves is basically an importer, more like a distributor than a manufacturer. And that's where we were when I came into the company. 
roll forward a bit. And when you really look at, certainly in our situation, if you took the total cost of production, quality, transportation, management issues, airfare, travel, everything else that goes with it, Mm-hmm. If you grind those costs in, often you find out that you really aren't saving any money and mm. you lose control of your process. Mm. And Philpot is an ISO certified company. And, you know, we have to maintain quality, not just to maintain our certification, but the expectations of our customers. So what we did, it was probably about four years ago, was bought a building in Aurora, Ohio. It's about a half an hour from our headquarters in Medina County, Ohio, which is just south of Cleveland. Yeah. And we equipped it with all new rubber and plastic molding business. And what we've done, it's pretty well completed, is we have moved our manufacturing back to the U.S., back to Ohio, And back to where our employees are making the product. And that was before even the current president, I think, took office. And before, you know, the move became one of let's start reshoring, let's make more things at home here. So I think we were a bit ahead of the game. We, We like to think so, but it doesn't matter. It's turned out to be the right thing. And we provide what our customers tell us is better product more timely, and the value is there for them. It doesn't cost us a whole lot more to make things here when you take the entire cost of manufacturing a product. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that everyone calls the customer. Now, how does that work? Like you said, even the CFO, do they have certain people that they call or do they just get random assignments? How did you sort of manage that process? That That is a great question. and. Yeah, think about here's a Mike Bach walks in to our CFO's office yeah. who still used green bar paper. You know, <laughs> he, he loved to make hand entries on it. And I said, hey, man, you're going to have to start making calls on customers. <laughs> I, I may have spoken something Martian to him. <laughs> and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, I'm not a salesman. I said, do me a favor. And you're married, right? Yeah. I said, go in the bathroom and look in the mirror, and you tell me if you're a woman on the planet, if you would marry that face. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, what you're going to find out, I I was teasing him to try to get his mind off the stress of making a call, but that you are a salesman. You sold this woman on the fact that you were something other than just a pretty face that you were going to be a great provider. And I said, do you have any kids? And he said, yeah, I have three of them. And I said, well, I won't go into it, but you've sold something else as well. So let's talk about this. <laughs> Often customers need uh, better terms. Customers get in trouble from time to time. And what I would rather be, in this case, our CFO's name was Russ. I'd rather the customer think about are being Russ at Philpot rather than customer number 228382. Mm. When they may have a shortage of money, who are you going to pay first? Well, we want to pay Philpot. So what we did is look to say, here are our largest customers. Mm-hmm. And we, we went down the list and, and we said, let's identify 
they're financial people, and you give them a call, offer to take them to lunch or come meet them, and I shall guarantee you they'll be thrilled because just like our CFO with the, the Green Bar paper, they probably have people there doing the same thing. It worked. On a higher level, what I did is the best I could to get a hold of the leaders of the company, but also made calls with our guys on the real decision makers. And often those are the people on the floor, purchasing people. All of these are, are great partners of ours. Mm. So right up and down the line, our, our purchasing people, you know, they buy things. Yeah. Well, who are they buying for? Not for the the fun of the company having it in the warehouse, it's for the customers. So we, we involve them. E- each of them has a series of partners on our sales staff and it isn't scattered. It is extremely well-planned. What we do then is, is share success stories and just expand upon success. Yeah, no, that's clever. I like that. So you just match them up. So there is a relevance, not just because they're calling for the sake of calling, but you just try to figure out the fits and try to get your organization closer to the, to the customer somehow through uh, multiple contact points. Well, and for me, ha- having been a startup company, our history started in 1984 over at Corpro. At yeah. Philpot, it was literally 100 years before that. One of our customers was GE Lighting. I was able to go walk at the um, lighting plant in Cleveland on the same path in the same building that Thomas Edison did. Mm. We go back at Philpont to relationships like that. And there's, there's a number of them that are great fun to take a look at. And they're still very good customers. That's very cool. So, so to me, again, the, the difference in a Philpot and a Corpro, ultimately the, the foundation is the same. That's confidence, creativity leads to productivity. But the time frame that the companies were there, Corpro was all new ideas. And you know, we had to sell the fact that we were unique and different in Philpot. We start with a 130-year-old story. And along with that comes some absolutely incredible dynamic customers that is like the who's who of the, the industrial age in America. Yeah. I think, I think I saw somewhere that you, you were involved in quite a lot of uh, sales training initiatives and stuff like that. Just mentioning, just uh, sort of mentioning that everyone's a salesperson kind of thing. Is that, is that the case? I saw some reference to you being uh, doing a lot of stuff in that area. Well, if you think about all that we've just talked about, it's interaction with customers. And ultimately, we're not there just to have fun or to socialize. We have a goal and they have a goal. And quite frankly, what I think both parties have to exchange are what are their expectations? We're meeting because we each have selfish expectations of what we want from, from each other what one company wants from the other. And that's called sales to me. And everybody, we have a requirement in our company that everybody participates in charitable organizations to be out there so the company can give back to society, if you will. Well, when they do that, what I've asked is that they either get on committees or boards of directors and our selfish interest is Philpot and our employees' interest 
is to learn how to be a better board member, sometimes how to be a board member from the very start because they've not done it before, how to network with individuals in our community and our business community, and then what does the organization want? They want our time. Let's not kid ourselves. They want our money in the form of charitable donations. But what they want is our expertise to help their organization grow, learn, and everything else. And those desires, those requirements, those expectations have to be shared from the beginning. And everybody agrees that that's what we're going to do. And when we do that, that works. Individual customer meetings take on the same environment, if you will. We want to share our individual expectations, that element of selfishness that we each have as a desire for working with that other entity, the other company. And when we do that, a good result normally occurs. That process is what I call sales. Makes sense. Now, talking about giving back, I know our mutual friend, Chris Bennett, mentioned that you're key in starting uh, Insert Campa. What is that about? Well, go back to that study by the Federal Highway Administration. And I actually did look and I said, 276 billion, this is going to be crazy. The wheelbarrows <laughs> of money will come in. Customers, if we have a sign on our car that says Corpro and now Phil Pot, they'll chase us down. They'll want to talk to us. And we waited and we waited and figured out just by itself, it's sitting there isn't going to work. <laughs> we went to the NACE, National Association of Corrosion Engineers, did some work together with industry. They did a lot of education. But Answer Camp, for those that don't, I, I doubt that many know, at the University of Akron, uh, they created the National Center for Education and research on corrosion and materials performance. You're not going to read that to people. So Enser Camp or the initials, that's what they call that. But where did Enser Camp come from and why? We got this huge cost of corrosion. We have people, particularly at the time at Corpro, that are trained by Corpro because there was no degree in corrosion engineering when we started our company. They be trained by Corpro. They might be civil, electrical, chemical engineers. They might be geologists, but we train them up on the science of corrosion and methods of prevention. And we put them out in the field and guess who they'd meet? Our customers. Customers see these experts and they say, heck, you know, we could do some of this internally. We try to anyhow. And they would hire our employees away. And what are you going to do, sue your customer for that? <laughs> so we'd have to recruit more people and train them. And it became a bit of a revolving door because our customers generally could pay our people more than we could. And when that happened, it, it just, it was frustrating. So I went to the University of Akron because they were asking, were there opportunities to put courses in that would help local business grow, thrive, flourish. And uh, I said, boy, what a, what a great idea this would be to have a degree in corrosion engineering where it wasn't our company and our companion companies in the market training their people, but that there would be a degree in corrosion engineering. So 
I went down, had several meetings, provided a study to them, explained the demand for this particular course, and they took it. Meetings with uh, the president of the university, Dr. Rex Ramsey was the uh, provost at the time, incredible human being, great insight, great visionary. And what we did was gave them, again, a study on what we believed the demand would be. And they took it and they did their own evaluation of what they saw in the market. And one even a month later, and they called me and said, look, we went through your study and you're wrong. And I said, well, I did my best and I actually think I was conservative. And they said, you were more than conservative. We believe the demand out there is three times what you told us. So they started putting together the corrosion engineering degree and Akron became, and I still think to this day, are the only university in the country that offers coursework where you can come out with corrosion engineering degree. Now, what, what does that mean? It really means that the, the problem out there can be solved quicker as we get more people out there. And I think the average of the first graduating class, which was probably three or four years ago, the average coming out of college uh, salary for those people was $80,000. So it will just tell you what kind of demand is up there that they've been deployed all over the world. I think the university told me there were several hundred applications to come into the program last year. Brian Marks, I don't know if you've spoken with him over at Answer Camp, kind of directs that particular activity. They're closely related to the professors in the corrosion engineering area, and it's just phenomenal what they tell me the growth has been. No, oh, that's that's great, and and I I uh, I can see that your passion for this area is. Big. I think you you took uh, once you uh, once you got to Philpot. I think you took some uh, classes on uh, was it polymer mixing? Yeah, I in uh, getting ready to come to Philpot, I took a class or two on yeah polymer mixing, and you're doing all this chemistry. And I got I think a 94 in the class, but almost oh. jumped off a bridge through the middle of it and. <laughs> What happened after, oh, it it was just, I mean, the intensity of all of it. I wanted to get it right. Well, so I walk into Philpont the first day, and where's the lab? Where where are the scientists? (laughs) Only to find out that we were application specialists. By then, the activities in the technical area, as well as manufacturing, for the most part, were in China. Mm. So. We, we not only had to bring manufacturing back, but we put a lab in and, and all kinds of different uh, means of maintaining quality control. So the issues related to mixing and things like that are back in the company. But again, great fun. I still pinch myself. I look at all those little bits and pieces that go into each of us as a person. And then ultimately, if we're smart, we share it with the the employees, and if, if we're wise, the company grows. Yeah, that's great. Now, I know you've met probably some wonderful people over the years. If you could have dinner with just 
any one person, who would it be? When you ask about dinner for fun or for our business? Your choice. Wow. Well, Sophia Loren has gotten pretty old. <laughs> so have I. And I. I would probably say some of the, the real founders of the industry. Mm. One of them, I have to admit, and again, he was one of my mentors. Over time, we haven't been able to spend as much time. He is one of the godfathers of many of the concepts uh, in the corrosion business. He is a guy by the name of David Kroon. He and I worked together at uh, Corpro down in Houston. He is still in Houston. Again, I'm in Ohio and in Florida most of the time. But uh, he's one of those delightful people. I, I am constantly spellbound by how his mind works. He probably is a guy that taught me how to be more creative. Mm. You may say, well, I met a guy that you've never had dinner with. And what I tell you is every time he and I get together, the fun we have as well as the topics we discuss are like they're brand new because there's always something new going on. You know, David, I thought of him that he was godfather to one of my sons when he was born when we were both in uh, Houston. So enjoy his time. And I feel terrible that time doesn't allow us to be together that often. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Now, Last question. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Well, when you woke up this morning, I know that you said, I got to have a corrosion control system. <laughs> the only thing I'd ask you is what structure do you want us to put it on and we'll be there. <laughs> Perfect. Quite, quite frankly, if people are technically minded, they have a good attitude, they have an aptitude in the technical area, I would strongly encourage them to consider a career in the corrosion uh, prevention world. You know, one of the places to take a look is the University of Akron, and they can go online and find out about the course. But I think they would find as well that the demand out there by just looking on some of these job services for people with corrosion experience and corrosion prevention experience is very vast, and it's a it's an area. That would be a fun study. As I mentioned before, it's not addictive, it's seductive. And once it's in your blood, you keep coming back. So I encourage our young people as they're starting out and looking for their career path to really consider corrosion prevention as a great opportunity and a way to create wealth for themselves and their family. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tats, and I wish you well. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.